Welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and our guest this week is one of the busiest persons on the planet, Donna Hoke. Donna is a playwright, a representative of the Dramatist Guild, and a highly active advocate for playwrights, offering advice based on years of experience and research. And those are offered both on her website, DonnaHoke.com, and on Facebook, on the official Playwrights of Facebook page. We began by asking Donna how she moved from her early career of writing journalism and features to scripting imaginary situations. Well, to clarify a little, I wasn't really a news journalist. I was mostly a feature writer, and I was an editor. Um, I would put together whole issues, and I would edit other people's stuff, but I didn't do a lot of news writing. It was mostly feature stuff for magazines, which I still do. I'm the editor of um, Buffalo Spree Home, which is our regional shelter magazine, and I write a lot of features for them, and I do all their theater writing and their health and fitness writing, so I still do a lot of that. That's my big time paying gig is is still freelance writing. Gotcha. I started writing plays. I mean I had I mean I'd written my whole life and I took creative writing classes in college. But I never quite gelled with fiction writing. Um, even though I liked making up stories and, and I wasn't super familiar with theater at the time. So I had lived in New Jersey for seventeen years and I moved back to Buffalo in two thousand four. And theater is plentiful and affordable here so I started going to a lot of it. And one of the theaters had a workshop, and they put on all the plays that they workshopped pretty much because their mission was new, uh, world premieres by Western New York playwrights. Right. And some of them were not great. So I thought, <laughs> I should, because it would be, maybe it would be fun to have a, a play produced. I didn't really think about it beyond just that might be fun to do that. And so that year I joined the workshop. Um, well, I applied and I got in, and that year they went from having three or four people to having all these people apply, and there were ten people in the workshop, and I did not get that play produced, but it really just kind of clicked, like that was the form of creative writing that I could do, and um, the following year I put another play through, and that one did get produced, and that was my first production in the fall of 2010. Which play was that? The Couple Next Door. Okay. Which is currently running in translation in Romania. In Romania? Yeah, I, I actually FaceTimed in to watch the production a few weeks ago. It was, it was interesting. That's a, that's a congratulations. Good for you. What's, what's it like seeing one of your works in a completely different language? It's crazy because I was trying to follow along on my script, but everything takes twice as long to say in Romanian. So much so that they actually really cut down two scenes almost completely because they had to finish in 90 minutes and it, it runs about about 100. Um, it, it, it's just kind of amazing. The rhythms are completely different. Laughs came in different places where I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of cool. And, and it was exciting to meet them because they, they were, they're running in rep for two years. So they've done it a year already and this was opening night of the next season. And they were excited to meet me, you know, on, on FaceTime. And they both came on, um, the two women. The men didn't speak English. But it was it was a really cool thing to be able to do. That's kind of, that's kind of, you, you raised a question I've never even thought of before. And that is, in translation, what must happen to the script or things that might happen to the script? I mean, as you said, they had to adjust the scenes or cut the scenes, cut the words. And... Over here, that's a rather touchy subject. It's playwriting is one of those, might be the last one, who knows, where the playwright owns every period, comma, space, breath, stage direction, 
and nothing can happen without specific permission. Translation is tricky that way because obviously you have to change the word, so you, you know there's no way around it. And the humor might be different. Um, and the the woman who translated, I mean, I trusted her. We talked a lot. I obviously could not check the translation. Sure. My, you don't speak um, Romanian, do you? We talked a lot about what different things meant. You know, what what is this joke? Why did you say this? You know, and I trusted that she wanted the intent to be there. I mean, she's been very transparent throughout. Yeah. What's the difference between writing plays and writing material that has to be factual? Uh, well, it's not to be factual. Um, but the big, what well, you asked before, how yeah. it informs the playwriting. I think, you know, so many playwrights I know, and I would say the overwhelming majority, write tons and tons and tons of stuff, and then they have to whittle away and find the play. I think because of my training and being concise and getting to the point and not having a lot of extra language, I tend to do the reverse. My plays start out very short, and I always have to add to them. You know, so it's I'm giving you the bare bones, and then... I need to figure out where I need to flesh things out. And, I, and I'm the only playwright that I know that, that it happens that way with. Everybody else I know is always trying to cut. Mm -hmm. They yeah. too much. They just go on and on. And, and I'm more spare at the start and then add. And I think that comes from years of journalism where you're just writing what you need to write and to tell the story. I, I ended up working for years uh, in news magazines, uh, Newsweek, Time Life, and all that sort of thing. And... The writers I knew there said the exact same thing. It was it was hard for me to get around finding only those critical pieces to actually put down on paper. As a playwright now, I basically have this big old manure shovel in my head, and I'm just plopping stuff onto the page and looking to see what you know, works later, and I spend more time throwing stuff out and making other things jibe. Uh, having too, too sparse of a script to begin with is interesting concept yeah i kind of envy the people who just uh, you know but i just it just yeah. doesn't work that way for me your first play was cockeyed today is do i have that correct yes okay a lot of first-time playwrights and for that when you were a first-time playwright we tend to write about things that we're eminently familiar with and you did the same thing yeah magazine writing and soaps you were a special projects editor at both soap opera digest and soap opera update um, so it's perfectly natural to you know, take what you know and run with it. But you also engage the subject of procreation in that play, in Cockeye Today. And you, all, you later on, one of your, another one of your plays, Seeds, also dealt with that. Um, what issue do you have, is, situation do you have with you know, procreation, having babies, um, society's view on, on the way we do things like this in America? What's... I think um, the procreation in Cockeye today, she had a child. Right. I mean, it, I, I don't know. Um, she had a child that she was on her way to have an abortion when 9-11 happened. Right. That's what happens in that story. Um, so it was a life-changing event for her in a, in a way that was different from how it changed most people. She was driving to her friend's house in New Jersey mm -hmm. when it happened. Okay. And she saw, she saw all the activity. She went to her friend's house, and they just kind of were glued to the news all day, and she didn't go, and then changed her mind. Right. So it's a little bit different. Seeds is um, a set of identical twins, one of whom is infertile, 
and one who has three children by three different fathers and the one who's infertile has really kind of decided she's fine with that. She doesn't really want any kids and her sister offers to be her egg donor surrogate and the complications that ensue from that. And um, I mean, I, I had infertility, I had infertility issues. I have two sets of twins. So that was a lot of detail information that I, I could share, but it really kind of ended up being um, a story about about these two sisters, and, you know, how people have children and how they choose to have children and why a lot of people think it's okay not to have children or it's not okay, rather. You know, a lot of women get hassled if they choose not to um, and treated pretty horribly sometimes. So it was kind of a little bit of exploration of, of that too. But, but that was something that I was familiar with. Um, but it really started out with the idea of the surrogacy because I find that kind of fascinating. I didn't have to do that, but I had friends who struggled with deciding whether they should go that route. Um, and I thought it would just be so emotionally complicated to do that. So that's kind of how it started. And then like all plays do it morphed into something else. <laughs> they tend to do that. I, I remember an incident uh, long ago in my past that I was, I was talking with someone who I'm going to classify as being conservative in, in very many ways. And she basically said, if you can and you're capable, then you should because it's your duty too. Talking about it, and I, at that point in time, I was—I've never really felt the the urge to replicate my DNA in in the form of, of another human being to you know, have stroll about the planet. And we never quite agreed on this sort of thing. So the issue of surrogacy in this play raises issues. I think a lot of people deal with. What kind of responses did you get to that play? Oh, it was really—it was interesting because. Um, Everybody resonated with a different character. You know, there there was um, you know, the woman who didn't want children. So then, you know, in the talkbacks, women who agreed with that wanted more of her, wanted more validation for her, you know, because they wanted it for themselves. And women who ended up with no children kind of as a default situation were sympathetic. Um, the mother in, of the twins had them very young at 17, so she never had more children, and she had a completely different view on how children change your life. And um, the husband was adopted, which is why he was so insistent on wanting his own child. And so people just picked the thing that connected, but it really, um, it really hit a lot of people hard. I mean, it, it won the Best Play Award that year um, in Buffalo, and it... it um, it just hit a lot of people. I still have people come up to me and say things about it. Um, it hasn't gotten any subsequent productions. I think as a marketable piece, it's not so much because people look at it as a chick play. But, um, but it, it hit a lot of um, notes with people. You mentioned validation. Obviously, it's a play that uh, engages a lot of emotion, a lot of... Uh, intellectual discussion a lot of opinions here and opinions there it's an extremely touchy uh, subject but the woman who wanted validation I find that interesting that uh, people can walk into a play take it as an issue play mm -hmm. and insist or want that their own personal views be explicated on stage that's going to be interesting to deal with as a writer. Yeah, people want to see themselves on stage. How, how did that make you feel? Um, it feels good. I mean, I felt like I 
I represented, you know, different sides. I mean, I have children, obviously I wanted them, but I completely understand people's reasons for saying they don't, and I respect them. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what bothered me, is that those women don't get respect. Uh, we, we put at Road Less Travel Day a flyer-type thing in the program and with supporting information, and I collected from friends and people I knew quotes about how people treat them when they say they don't want children. And it's pretty horrifying. You know, the things that people, I mean, I think we can all agree we don't really need any more people. And yet, you know, people will say things to these women like, it's your duty, why'd you bother to get married, things like that, just horrible stuff. So I, I have felt sympathy for those women. The writer for the Buffalo News wrote about you a little while ago, and I'm going to quote here for a second. The couple next door, produced at Road West Travel Theater, was about the vagaries of a quartet of swingers on Grand Island and seemed to perplex and intrigue audiences in equal measure. The play contained no cookie-cutter happy ending, no Hollywood-worthy conclusion. Just a lot of moral questions lingering uncomfortably in the air. That's also likely to be the case for Donna Hoke's new play, Seeds, which we just referred to, which deals with society's expectations about procreation in some shocking and unexpected ways. Okay, your work is obviously intended to be challenging, to raise issues, to uh, deal with subjects of substance. My question to you is why not write something that audiences can rest easy with, that they can walk out of the theater not having to worry, think about it. I mean, it's certainly safer. And the second part of this question, do you find that presenting a challenging play such as Seeds or one of the, one of, you know, a couple next door to a prospective theater might have an effect on your acceptance rate? Um, well, the couple next door is a comedy. So, it, you know, I think that people enjoyed it on that level. Um, it did engender some some fun discussion. I don't know. I think, you know, they always say, write the play you want to see. I much enjoy something challenging that raises questions of some kind. I mean, I do have a couple lighter things. I mean, I have a Christmas comedy that I'm developing at the Hormel Festival of New Works in March. That's pretty light. But it also raises a question about how much um, technology is taking over our lives even as it's a happy ending Christmas comedy, it still raises that question. I don't think that anything I've written, even my 10 minute plays are ever just purely for laughs or for entertainment. There's always a traumatic question that I find interesting. And that's what makes it worth writing to me. You know, if it doesn't have that, if it's just, you know, for nothing, then I don't think I would be interested in it myself. What is it about a quartet of swingers at, uh, on Grand Island that actually interests you? Well, they weren't on Grand Island. You know, the, what, what happened, it was kind of funny. Right before the play was announced, there was a big brouhaha on Grand Island. There was a swinger convention, and people rebelled, and they wanted it shut down. And then the play was announced, and everyone assumed it was about that, as if I could write a play and announce it within a week. Of, of that happening. <laughs> Some people write screenplays in less of the time. <laughs> right. Um, and again, it did not start out being a swinger play. It started out um, about people's perceptions. When my husband and I got divorced, everybody said, oh my God, I can't believe that. You were this, you were that. And it just really enforced that you don't really know anything just from watching from the outside. So I had this thought about having two couples who live next door to each other who each perceived the other's marriage to be better than theirs for some reason. 
and um, maybe one couple started out happy and ended up unhappy and vice versa. And, and I just started taking a lot of notes about that. And then I thought, how can they engage? And I thought, what if one of the couples were swingers, you know, and then the couple who was unhappy saw how happy they looked and thought, you know, maybe that's what we need. And, and it kind of evolved into that. It didn't start out, I want to write about swingers. It started out, how can I get these couples to be viewing each other in a way that is completely unlike what's actually happening. We touched uh, briefly before on uh, one of your plays being done in Romania, but you've also got one in Ghana. It's a short, it's a 10-minute play in Ghana um, that, that will be running this weekend, and I'm pretty excited about it because that's the fifth continent that I've had a play produced on. And um, One it more was, to go. Yeah. Which well, one? Two more to go. Antarctica, which um, is... Does called, Antarctica have a theater? No, they don't. And, you know, the only person I know who says they've got all seven continents is Rich Orloff because he had a friend who was going on an Antarctic cruise, gave them a play, told them to hold a reading on the ship, you know, document it, and, and, um, and that, that's what he's counting, which is pretty um, intentional. the truth a but, little bit, but why but, not? Yeah. Well, I need South America, so I need to work on that. Um, but this, this was an op that I saw... They were doing something called an African walks into a container. So I wrote something specifically for that about a young runner in Ghana and a visiting American coach because Ghana has never won a gold medal in the Olympics. So this coach tries to convince this runner um, that he should come to train in America and, and he doesn't want to go. Um, so the container is a steam room where they're having this conversation. So, yeah, that'll be this weekend. Congratulations on that. You are very, very active when it comes to the craft of playwriting. Besides being a writer yourself, you are an advocate uh, for play development, and I'm going to get to this in a second. You are a representative of the Dramatist Guild, which I'll also get to in a second. Um, but I personally discovered you as Donna Hoke Playwright via Facebook. Uh, uh, official playwrights of Facebook, I believe. You have a couple of things going on. The RIPP series, which I'd love to hear you tell me about, and the Trade to Play Tuesday, which I keep meaning to send <laughs> one out, and I almost had one Tuesday, but I, I think I kind of put the finishing touches on it this morning, so next Tuesday you'll probably get something from me. But let's talk about these. Okay. Um, I mean, I had, I had a website for a long time, but I didn't really blog. If I blogged, it was like, this is what's going on. I have this play or that play. And, and being on official playwrights of Facebook, you had a lot of people talking about whether cold submissions are worth it or not. And I thought they had to be. I mean, I knew some people who did have success that way. So I decided I was going to try to find the stories, the success stories of cold submission, because for those of us who are doing that, we want to believe that we're not just sending things out pointlessly. <laughs> so I interviewed, I don't know, 70 or so literary managers and artistic directors at various theaters, whoever would talk to me, and I asked them, have you ever done a play that was a result of a cold submission? And I did find some great success stories, including Sarah Rule's Eurydice, which was a cold submission. But overwhelmingly, the series kind of morphed into words of wisdom from these people and advice on how to get your plays produced because most of the literary managers and artistic directors said that cold submissions really are largely a waste of time. Um, there, there are exceptions and the, the series is up to I think about 49 or 50 entries and they will be there for anyone who wants to read them um, indefinitely. But Tell us where. 
um, at DonnaHope.com. And so it really, like, the name of the series really isn't quite apt anymore, but it's still a lot of useful information about making connections and how to do that and, and how to get plays produced. I'm wrapping it up now because um, it's starting to get repetitive, and, I, and I'm, it's a lot of legwork to get those people on the phone or to answer emails, and I'm kind of exhausted from, from doing that. So I'm going to wrap it up. Um, but I occasionally write other posts that are just kind of meant to be inspirational for playwrights. My most recent one um, was about how to submit. People are like, how do you submit so much? Because I make hundreds of submissions a year. I just read that. And, yeah, um, I've been doing this for a while myself. And I was like, check, done that, check, done that. Ooh, this works. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I checked today, and over 650 people read that yesterday, which, wow, that's, like, insane. Yeah. So, I mean, those kinds of posts I try to do, I, you know, inspirational stuff during rejection season or different, different stuff like that. Um, and then Trade to Play Tuesday came about because I'm always looking for people to read my work. And I love reading new plays. If someone says, will you read this for me? I always say yes. I just love to do it. And so one, one day on uh, play, the Playwrights Binge, I, I had a new 10-minute play. And so it's like, anybody feel like reading this? And I'll read yours. And something like 20 people you know, sent me their plays that day and read mine, and I thought I should just make this a regular thing on Tuesdays. So I did, and I think January January 14th will be the one-year anniversary of Trade to Play Tuesday. There has never been a Tuesday where somebody didn't send plays. You no. get overwhelmed? No, it's not a crazy amount. Um, and there's always newcomers, and then old people come back. Are you still doing this? And I maybe get anywhere between 6 and 20 every Tuesday, which isn't a crazy amount. I wish I could get more. It's not hard. I mean, they come in and I just swap the emails. I mean, it's not mm. a lot of work on my end. I have them CC me so I can make sure that they're actually doing it because I did have a couple complaints where people were not really giving good feedback and then they were sending another play and another play. Um, but very few and far between. Um, the, the, the play I have in Ghana, I ran through Trade to Play Tuesday and got some excellent feedback, and it was accepted there. I've had several others that are, have since then produced. And it's, What's it's, your turnaround time for this? The, the guidelines, which are also on my website, if you search Trade to Play Tuesday, it's going to be the first thing that comes up. So if you look for that, you'll find it. Um, I, it has to be done by midnight Eastern Standard Time, ideally within three hours of receiving. What happens is the people send, like you send your play and someone else sends theirs, those two emails, the, the, as they come in, in order, I swap them. It's one-to-one, yeah. one-to-one. Okay. You can resend your play if you want another one. And I do tell people if they send it and nobody else sends one within two hours, I will swap them one of mine, just so that everybody will get something. And that happens very rarely touched on Dramatist Guild before. I mentioned, uh, mentioned that. You are a representative for uh, Northwestern section of New York, correct? Western New York. Western West New York. Mm -hmm. uh, I get, uh, I have, you know, Buffalo to, you know, midway between Rochester and Syracuse, and then Asia Stratford of Ithaca has Albany, Ithaca, Syracuse area. Yeah, we and love Asia. She's been on the show. I, I heard hers, actually, a while ago. <laughs> um, yeah, I love Asia. We work well together, and we our regions are very similar. And a lot of this stuff came, all this stuff about helping and advocating and advocating for playwrights to help themselves kind of came from being the rep and trying to mobilize the playwrights in Buffalo and figuring out what they need um, to to feel confident enough to send out their work to, to know. And, and Asia has the same issues she finds um, in Ithaca. So we talk a lot about um, what we can do. Our very first 
event we did together. You know, I can't, I think you might have been at that. I at came the kitchen theater? At the kitchen. Yes. I went and then she came here and we did a submission seminar, basically how to submit your plays, where to find places, you know, how to do all of that. And I actually had someone come up to me the other day, a play right here, saying, you should do a submission thing. But, um, but that kind of stuff made me realize that the playwrights here needed encouragement, and, and Aisha found that too. So we try to work together. And then the other thing that we started was the Roving Reading series. We had um, the, the Kitchen. We had um, Gary Earl, Earl Ross's play at Jiva, and we did one here at Road Less Travel Theater. So we'll be gearing up for round two soon, taking submissions um, from Dramatist Guild members um, to get readings at various theaters around the state. Um, it was very positively received um, from everybody involved. So that was another thing, just to kind of try and help playwrights help themselves. I'm a playwright. Why should I join the Dramatist Guild? Oh, my gosh, because it's such a great resource. Um, you know, in addition to the magazine, well, I mean, the, having a regional rep is a huge reason for someone to join now, and that's why the regional rep program was started, because they wanted members to have value at the local level. So every regional rep kind of gears their programming to what their local community needs. So here, you know, we did submissions. I did an artistic director's panel where all the artistic directors from theaters outside the city came and talked to the playwrights about what kind of new work they were looking for. Um, a couple of, of think calls for plays came out of that. Like one theater said, I really would like plays set on a train. And um, we're all going as a group to see David Henry Huang. And I got a huge discount for us for that. Once a month, I do a playwrights mob where we all go to a play together and go out afterward to talk about it. I have secured discounts at all of our theaters in the city, severe discounts. I mean, some of them are free um, if you're a dramatist skilled member. So there's a lot of local membership benefit, which there didn't used to be. People's complaints used to be, oh, it's a New York organization, why do I need to join that? Sure, yeah. I joined because I wanted to be part of the professional organization for, for playwriting. I did, wasn't getting any of those benefits, I just wanted to join, but then what ended up happening is when I got the email about um, the couple next door in Romania, that same week, that play was requested by someone in Turkey, Croatia, and Romania, and I was like, I don't know what to do with it, with any of these requests. They all want to translate it. So I wrote to the Dramatist Guild. They give great legal advice, um, which is a great reason to join, and they have sample contracts for everything under the sun, too. Anyway, they said, you know, if you feel like this is a legitimate thing, here's the name of an agent that you can call who handles international stuff. So I called her, and she took me on to handle those things. Um, so I have an international agent, but no domestic agent, <laughs> although she will, you know, she will submit things for me if I ask her to once in a while. But um, she's mostly international. But I never would have known what to do with those foreign requests if not for the Dramatist Guild. Sounds so, like a heck of a resource. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, and if you're a professional, if you want to be a professional, it is your professional organization. I'm sure Gary Garrison will love both of us for bringing this one up. <laughs> <laughs> I miss you, Gary. One last topic before we before we get to that, and it involves a word I've been dying to say out loud and on the air for years, and you are a chronic cruciverbalist. Am I correct? I am. All I right. Am before the cops come to your house and arrest you for cruciverbally, let us know what that means, please. I make crossword puzzles. Okay. Um, my obvious question is, how'd you get started? I got started because I worked at Soap Opera Digest. I was the puzzle go-to person. Um, you know, we need to fill this page, come up with a game. 
and I would, you know, take pictures of actors' eyes and identify the actors or whatever I would come up with. And interestingly, Games Magazine, edited by Will Short, was one block away from our offices at Soap Digest. That's just a weird mm. twist. And I never applied to work there because I didn't want to ruin Games Magazine for myself because I loved it. So I ended up leaving Soap Opera Digest when I was pregnant with my daughters. And that was like when computers were coming out. So I got one. And they have all those cheap $10 programs back then. And I yes. got one yeah. for making crossword puzzles. And I had hired the crossword puzzle person at Soap Opera Digest. So I bought this program and with no knowledge whatsoever suggested to my former boss, you should let me do the puzzle now. And she was like, okay. And so I started doing it. And those first ones were pretty wonky. Um, but I do dove in and I wrote to Will Shorts and said, you know, do you have any advice? And he gave me advice and names and it just snowballed from there. And and I started making them and I sold them to the New York Times, LA Times, Games Magazine, Simon & Schuster Publications. Um, I started making it for Soap Opera Digest and I've been making it ever since. Um, so my daughters are 20. So I've been doing their puzzle for 20 years. Um, I used to do soap opera weeklies before they went under. And I just started doing one for a new newspaper in Buffalo called The Public. And I do them for people's birthdays. Um, I just did my first wedding proposal one for a couple in Connecticut. And, you know, they're just kind of fun. I mean, the wordplay and the clues. I've been doing crossword puzzles for, oh my, oh my God, a couple of hundred years now. And... Um, I've always sat there and wondered how these things are actually put together. I mean, who are the, besides Will Shorts that everybody kind of knows who does, you know, crossword puzzles. Um, and it seems like the nicest guy on the planet. Um, I don't never met anybody who actually constructed one of these things. So please, I mean, for my audience, for me, how do you do these? Well, the, the theme answers need to go first because they're the longest. If, if you're not doing a theme puzzle like a Friday or Saturday, um, you can just, design a grid that's pretty to you and start filling it in but if, if you have themes you know they're determinate lengths you need to have those in first well, and what if i get to a section and the only word that fits with all the rest of the words i put in is gloop farble then you have to start over uh. <laughs> i mean I ha i'm on a crossword constructors list and i can't tell you how many people will go you know can I use this word? I have to use this word. And the inevitable advice from the veterans is, no, you don't have to use that word. You have to start over. But they don't want to start over. And, and it is. It's a, you know, I mean, the, I have a program. Guys like Merle Regal, you know, he still does it all by hand. Right. Um, I have a program that most constructors use called Crossword Compiler. So there's a grid. And you can click, you know, and it'll make it a black box, and it will also put in the symmetrical black box because crossword puzzles are symmetrical, right. diagonally. Um, you know, and you just sit there and you'll click, and then you'll try and fill it, and then that doesn't work, and like, you know, click, click. I mean, you I just I, the time is such a time suck sometimes. You could just hours can go by trying to get the grid to work, but but that's that's how it is. It's trial and error until it works. I keep meaning to send Will. I have a 10-minute play called Two Puzzles Walk Into a Bar about a crossword puzzle and a Sudoku who are trying to pick up this pencil. <laughs> I love it. I want to send it to him because I thought maybe he'd want to just have people read it at the convention. Why my, not? Go for it. I, I keep meaning to do it. I keep forgetting. I have his email, and I mean, he knows who I am, but... Um, I just thought that might be kind of fun if anybody felt like it's been produced a few times and it's been favorable, but that crowd is like the target audience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They would get every single joke. <laughs> in the 
you, your most recent blog post was about how to submit. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful read, and everybody out there should motor on over and read this. Uh, if you're a playwright, it will help you out immensely. But my question is, a lot of these places that you do submit to want a world premiere. They want something that nobody's even seen before. They want something that has never even been read by the family dog sometimes. And what do you do when you've had one play produced in, oh, I don't know, uh, Kalamazoo as a, you know, a world premiere? What happens to that play after that? And what about the play sitting in your drawer that you self-produced because... You got tired of waiting for somebody else to do them. What, what's, what's the future for those plays? Well, a lot of a lot of places define produced differently. Like Yale, the Yale um, competition, they define it as equity only. So that eliminates a lot of people. You know, a lot of sure. productions that people can still submit to there. Some specify that it had to be the actors had to be paid. That eliminates all community theater production pretty much. Um, so you have to actually go after these folks and find out what they mean by... Find out what they produced. mean by that, yeah. And I, I mean, I also... I mean, I, we're talking about full-length plays. The first two plays I wrote, Cockeye Today um, and Lost at Sea, will probably never get produced at this point because I don't send them out. They're my first two plays. They're not awful, but, you know, things I've written subsequently are better. The advice I've heard from a lot of people, and I haven't really had a chance to test it yet, is that if somebody really wants to produce your play, they're not going to care. I don't know how true that is. Um, I don't either. Um, I think there's some truth to it, obviously, because you have a play that comes off Broadway and everybody produces it and nobody cares. And I think the world premiere stuff is so often tied to grant money that the theaters can get for promoting new work, which is why you end up seeing all these new play 10-minute play festivals and that's why I mean you think why does anyone need a brand new 10 minute play my god you know 15 people saw it you know mm -hmm. in some but it's so they can say that they they do new work and then they can apply for grants to get new work and it's very low risk new work to do an evening of brand new 10 minute plays you know very little scenery very little investment they right. can work with a lot of new playwrights so and if it sucks it's over in nine and a half minutes and then you go to the next one Right. So I think that a lot of that world premiere stuff comes from a desire to be able to apply for grant money. And I think if somebody truly, truly likes your play, it's not going to be quite as critical. In terms of actual production in theaters, contests is our different story. They usually want something brand new. Right. But, but it, you know, I think that it, if they want to do your play, they will, they will do it. Particularly, if, you know, a lot of times you can go to a theater and say, how about the West Coast premiere? And I see that happen all the time. If they like it, I think they will do it regardless. Your website is DonnaHoke.com, D-O-N-N-A-H-O-K-E.com. Mm -hmm. What's coming up next? How can we uh, keep track of the fact that you never seem to rest or get any kind of sleep between writing and advocating and doing crossword puzzles and blogging? And I forget what we talked about. Well, I have my Donna Hoke Playwright page, which kind of is like, you know, regular updates on, a, you know, pictures and things like that that I can't put on my website all the time because that only gets updated when I have a new play or, you know, new reviews or something. 
Um, I have coming up in March the Hormel Festival in, in Arizona where I'll be developing the Christmas play. So that'll be pretty cool, a week in Arizona. Um, and then one thing that I can say that I thought I would not be able to talk about today, the, the, the theater where I'm a, an ensemble member has just developed this partnership with Saginaw Valley State University. Is this more or less traveled? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, where a play from a Western New York playwright will get a production in the theater department at Saginaw Valley State University um, as kind of a warm-up to a world premiere. And they're going to use my play safe for that first program. They're calling it the beta program. So in October, I will go there and I will work with the students and we will rehearse. And then the play will be produced there at the school in November. And I will have gotten essentially a really solid workshop production to help me develop this play without it taking the world premiere title, um, which is pretty cool. So I'm really happy they picked mine to be first. And interestingly, the guy who runs the department there um, is the guy who directed my very first reading of my very first play, Cockeye Today, um, way back when, when it was in the Road Less Traveled workshop. And so he will be the guy out there that I'll be working with, which is kind of coming full circle and kind of neat. So I'm looking forward to that. And I have um, several short plays coming up, various places. Um, my first productions in Canada are coming up. And I'm going to have a suite of plays done at a theater um, soon, but I don't think I can talk about that yet. And um, so I think in 2015 I have several things lined up already. I'm going to be traveling a lot, more than I have the past couple of years. That's amazing. Congratulations. Donna Hoke, thank you so very, very, very much for being with us today. And uh, good luck with all the, the millions of things you've got coming up. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to speak again in the future. I'll see you on Facebook.